Welcome to part two of our episode with Susan Kismarek. We'll pick up right where we left off with Susan talking about her ability to still see new things when looking at photographs. We'll also get into her more recent role as a photo history instructor and a visiting critic. And towards the end of the show, Kai teases out of Susan a little something about her that maybe a lot of people don't know. So enjoy, and we'll talk soon. still see photographs that are unlike other photographs because it's like PL's line you know the P, that photography is a language people think they understand it's like it's like back in the day I can remember people would always talk about Lee and Gary Lee and Gary Lee Friedlander mm-hmm. Gary Winogrand Gary, as though their work was similar right. yeah <laughs> you know I mean it was astounding yeah. and and um in the same breadth always and I would always sit there and go but they're entirely different. Their sensibility is mm-hmm. entirely different. How they physically photograph, what they photograph, all of it. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, and those distinctions. And then, of course, if you think about new documents, which they were in along with Diane Arbus, I, I constantly use that as my touchstone in terms of trying to convey how pictures made in the world can be so varied, have so, you know, just be so different in terms of yeah, when, I mean, author these days i now with in them being more historical almost that people be like oh those are they get maybe lumped back together just as like oh i'm sure they do you know people that made photographs in new york at a certain time period or black and white photographers who photographed yeah. on the street whatever yeah. that means yeah, so they're yeah, and and the other thing that happens i think often with that work is that there's a kind of a nostalgia that gets attached to it in terms right. of yeah. the subject matter i i've always said that one of the reasons that younger people that Eggleston appeals, aside from the reputation, um, is and the drunk people in the pictures, um, is is the hairstyles, the clothes, the cars. Yeah, the colors. You know, of there's all that the, stuff. The, yeah, yeah that there's there's a kind of campy mm-hmm. nostalgia for it, and it's not really an appreciation for Bill as a photographer. Whenever I, I if I show, I, I rarely, sometimes I show my photo two class some photographs, uh, but not not that often. But whenever, when we get to color, I usually show some Eggleston and everything. Sure. And they always start laughing and, and not laughing, but they like, they go, oh my God, this is like an Instagram photographer, you know, a picture of his food. <laughs> like, of course, that there's the one of the, right. in the airline with the drink oh, on yeah. the tray. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. like, yeah, it's yeah. like, that's exactly um, what we would yeah. be, you know, posting <laughs> on Instagram today are those exact same type of pictures. But when you mentioned Michael Almereda, I realized I left out from your your CV, your bio, actress. <laughs> oh, very yes. recently, well, right now, streaming on Netflix. If you want to go see and watch uh, the movie Experimenter by Michael Almereda, there's Susan sitting at a table, reading and shuffling through papers, and looking very like you're undecided I'm, whether I'm, or not you're going to support. The oh, band. I thought I was pretending that I was being. Actually, it was true. I, I play someone who's on the tenure committee when Stanley Milgram, who the film is about, is up for tenure at Harvard. And I am one of the people to judge his, whatever, his, uh, what's the word, uh, appropriateness, whatever, yeah. whether he deserves tenure. Mm. Um, which he does not get. Which he does not get. Um, <laughs> oh, spoiler alert. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah, wreck the movie. But when we were filming, we did one take or whatever it's called. And uh, Michael was obviously not in the room. And he comes back in and he leans over and 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 he says, Susan, you're a really good listener. <laughs> and I said, Well, Michael, I sat in meetings around a table for 35 years, so yeah, pretending I was interested or pretending a certain attitude or whatever. Anyway, anyway, yes. Is that the only film of his you're in? Or are you in others? You must be in others. Uh, no, be. there might be one other, but I can't remember. I think I might have been cut out, oh. edited out. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> anyway, so, you know when you when you mentioned that you still kind of see the magic in photography. It reminded me of a, a conversation I've had with a a few other people about um, the sort of the failure of, of Benjamin's uh, prediction of the of photography would cause the aura of art to sort of be all be washed away, and 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 of course there was 
there was a real belief in at one point in, in sort of magic as in curative kind of properties, mm. things like that. But of mm. course, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but even even in these sort of traumatic times when people turn away from maybe a kind of higher art to maybe a more, uh, let's say, you know, the the end of pictorialism or the the transition from the avant-garde to uh, the more uh, um, social concern work or things like that, mm. right? There were, that was still uh, turning, uh, using photography in a way that, that was powerful, right? I mean, there was, yeah. there's, ne- there's never really been the loss of the belief in photography. There's doubt and cynicism, things like that. But it, it, photography still has always held a very kind of powerful place in, in our minds in terms of both how we understand things and how we remember things. Sure. Right? No, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, Tom would, what? Uh, Tom Roma? Is, you mean? Tom Roma would yeah. not think this is especially important. But, you know, it's like the photograph of the little boy who drowns on the beach in right. Greece. Right, You know, I mean, that's one example of, you know, the power of the medium. Um, you know, I, I, I can remember once being at the museum and John was at a meeting and I don't, it was probably an exhibitions meeting of some sort, but I remember him coming back to the department saying, it's all going to go to the academics. Hmm. And I said, what? And he said, photography, all of it. It's all going to go. And that's exact. I have no idea what the meeting was about, who was there, whatever. Hmm. And of course, it turned out to be true. Now, I don't think that postmodernism was a bad thing. How could it be? I mean, it brought forward... A lot of work by people we wouldn't pay attention to, whether they be women or African Americans, um, and a lot of issues, you know, um, and a lot of ideas about photography. The problem is it it also at the same time derailed the critical, the good critical voices about photography, so that it really, what's the word? The conversation about photography is just degenerated. I mean, there isn't anyone out there. I mean, honestly, you know, Rick Woodward writes a blog. What's Mm -hmm. it? Photograph Collector, I guess. I think so. And he occasionally writes for the Wall Street Journal. And he's the most articulate Mm. in terms of talking about photographs. But, you know, now Roberta Smith is reviewing photography for the time. You know, mm-hmm. she reviewed the show in Brooklyn about the Israeli-Palestinian oh, project. Yeah. Right. And she, I believe she knows nothing about photography or its history. I mean, she probably knows something at this point in time. But what's my point? I, ju- I just think that um, the, the, the dialogue got derailed. You know, and w- what is, I think, one of the best-selling photo books is The Humans of New York. Oh, yeah. Which the photographs of which are nothing. Yeah, yeah, we, that's Completely come up a couple and of times course, on, the, on the show. Of, of course, what anybody has to say about their life is interesting. I think, you know, it's kind of like you know, it's like some random website. Well, <laughs> I guess it was a random website, <laughs> right. but you know, it's like it's like the the inquiring photographer wants to know, yeah. uh, what do you think of Donald Trump? You know, and you have a photograph of the person, they say, you know, he's fabulous yeah. or whatever. <laughs> I love him. I'm going to, whatever. Well, they have that in the onion, right? In the onion, there's yes. like the little headshots yes, exactly. where they give the opinions. Uh, uh, and exactly. They, 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 they just, use the same people every week. Yeah, they week use the same whatever. people every week. Yeah, and yeah, just, yeah. <laughs> no. So what's my point? I don't, I, I just think there isn't a very intelligent conversation and and you know it may be that there won't be another intelligent conversation you know it just may yeah, it seems to me that the people having conversations whether they're intelligent or not about uh photography it's the the conversation isn't actually about the photographs it's yeah. about the ideas around yes. the project right yes. so and yes. uh i mean that's reflected in the current show at moma um, you know, you go in and you're like, okay, I see that someone uploaded a photograph to, uh, Wikipedia right. and therefore it got copied to all these other websites. Right. And now here's the right. representation of that right. being on the wall. But, you know, that's not a particularly photographic experience, nor is the photograph itself to be read. It's, you know, it's all this other conversation around the photographs and around what's happening with them. And, Therefore, it's dumbing down the the visual side of it. I mean, like the actual. The, well, I'm not sure it's it. dumbing down the visual it's, as much as it's intellectualizing it in a way yeah. that leaves out um, experience, emotion, um, all those things that art 
I'm sorry, it's not just an intellectual enterprise. It it has a, you know, it's like you. I remember once with John and and thinking about buying something, and we we would put it up, and he'd say, "Let's look at it for a few days." You know, I'd say, "You know, yesterday I thought it was really great, but the more I look at it, it's." He said, "Well, let's keep it up, you know." And then mm. it, you know, you might come back around, and and of course, your response depends on who you are that day, what mood you're in, what you're thinking about, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that um, a lot of the work that's done now is just so conceptual and intellectual, and it just leaves out experience. And and photography is so much about experience, whether it's a portrait where you're you know looking at that person one to one, or you know the way you arrange people on the street, whatever it is, or architecture, you know uh, the way the light's hitting at that you know hour of the day. I don't know. There's something about the transformation of the real world into the picture that just, it's just so valuable. Uh, because it, to me, it's like, it, it's, it, it's almost as though those photographers love, even if those things are horrible often, it's, it's, it's as though they love those things. And if you love something, you want to cherish it and preserve it and be able to look at it. And so... I mean, my friend Michael Almereda actually has written about Eggleston in that regard. You know, as you were saying earlier, you know, the picture of the drink on the tray on the airplane or the meal, you know, in the dining room. Um, it is about the wonder of everyday life. Yeah. You know, and Eggleston happens to be a particular way of doing that. But anyone who's photographing the world, it is a wonder at what's out there. You know, I think Nick Nixon, very early on, he was part of a, the exhibition when was it, 72 maybe, new topographics up at George Eastman House. No one ever saw the show, right. apparently, but there is. And then it was redone by um, Britt Salverson at, uh, when she, I think when she was at the Center for Creative Photography, she redid that exhibition and expanded the book. But Nick wrote a statement about photography, and it, I'm going to misquote him, but it, it's really about how the world is infinitely more interesting than any idea that he could impose on it. But of course, he is imposing his ideas on yeah, it. But you get my point, yeah, you know, that anything you can sit around and make up and then, you know, arrange or, you know, have people, you know, act out, you know, what goes on in the world, I mean, we know this. We know this because we're alive. Yeah. And, you, you know, with how many times you said, I can't believe it, I can't believe it. My hard drive crashed and I have nothing left, whatever your trauma is or whatever the wonderful thing is. You know, it's like, wow, you know, man, it's, you know, it's right there in front of us. Mm -hmm. And photography helps us understand that, appreciate it, enjoy it, whatever, whatever. But anyway. Yeah, I think the split I'm, I'm talking about are seeing, especially now with, I get to see all these graduate students coming in. And I also, we just did graduate admissions, so I saw all of the people that applied and wow. the type of things people are speaking about and sure. um, the fascination. It's, it does seem like the spectrum that it's moving more and more towards illustration where, yeah. where it's illustrating the idea, right? Yeah. As opposed to um, discovery or going right. out and, and finding no, things. No, it is about a discovery. Yeah. I mean, and if so you I'm talk not, to someone like Amela, you know, she goes to these insane, pla insane. She goes to the Arctic. She goes to, I don't know where, you know, the Middle East, wherever. Um, and to her, it's, it, you know, she thinks of it as a 19th century photographer. Right. You know, she's going to a place she's never seen. Many people have never seen. Mm -hmm. And how do you describe that? Um, to me, it is about a kind of exploration. I mean, look, people who are setting things up are also exploring. Oh, yeah, no, But I'll go back to sure. my point about it being there and discovering it, you know, that it already exists. Yeah. And... Um, yeah, but if you're setting up a still life you're and thinking about everything you're referencing, you're still... Yeah. The photograph is still going to teach you something about what sure. you're putting together and that... and our satisfaction and how we look and read that photograph is based on what was going on there or based on that, like the effect of the photographic effect of what's happening versus there's much more chance for failure, I think in that regard. Yes. Whereas if you're, if you're saying, look, I'm, 
I'm interested in this very important topic, whatever it could mm-hmm. be. And, you know, and it's very important right now, you know, I'm interested in, you know, naming the topic. And then I photographed these objects or these things that happen to be tangentially related to mm-hmm. that topic. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to give it the title, something about that topic. Then who's to say? Photographer will remain nameless. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then you're like, okay, look, I look and I see a photograph of that thing. You're telling me it's about this, and who's to disagree? And but it's the fact that it's a banal or boring photograph that has nothing to do with the experience that they're trying to create. It's more right. These things exist to talk about. I understand what you're saying. I also think that it's possible that the world is overwhelming, and I'm not just talking about all the horrible things going on within the last, let's see, how far back should we go? Five years? I don't know. Um, But I do think that's an issue. And it's a lot of things. It's not just that the world is overwhelming, although that I can see how it would be very intimidating. Although, you know, I can think of Gilles Perez, who, you know, was with Magnum for many years, maybe still is, and was involved in this Israel-Palestine project. At the Brooklyn, that's at the Brooklyn Museum now. You know, I can when he 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 did a book with Aperture with my sister called Telex Iran, and the book was about the fact that he went there, and he could not figure out what was going on, mm. and that's largely what the book was about. And it was about his inability to really grasp what was going on, and then the media to whom he was sending the pictures for use in the magazines who would miscaption them. Right. So about how information gets distorted and changed and the caption's completely wrong. No, this isn't the Ayatollah X, Y, and Z. This is the <laughs> Savak, the guys who, you know, whatever. Um, Gilles, interestingly, you know, he, he, I'm not sure that was part of his project, but, you know, he, he, he talked about it with me at the time. I did his, I showed his work on Rwanda at MoMA, and it was a site, and he said it back in the day. He said, uh, you have no idea what this is going to unleash. And he was talking about the Telex Aram book, meaning mm-hmm. what's been unleashed. But he knew it, and I haven't talked to him about it recently, but I was kind of astounded. But he wasn't afraid, you know. He, you know, then he he goes to um, Serbo-Croatian war. You know, does he go to Beirut? He, uh, well, be, no, no, no. Okay. It's it's when the Ayatollah Khomeini, when the Shah of Iran is expelled, oh, okay. and the Ayatollah Khomeini has okay. taken over, and they're trying to figure out what's going on. Mm. No, but he does that. He does Rwanda. He does um, Yugoslavia. And it's all about, and at the time he said, it's about tribalism. It's, a, I mean, he had a, an, an intellectual grasp of it. Right. A historical grasp where he understood that this, and that's, of course, what's happened. It is all tribalism at this point, whether mm-hmm. it's here and we're talking about red state, blue state, or, you know, yeah. whatever tribe you want to be part of or not part of. Yeah. In any case, what's my point? Um, I, I, I think there are many reasons that making pictures in the real world has fallen off, let's call it that. You know, that it does, but it, it's not only that the world is an overwhelming place. I think it also has to do with career. I think it has to do with money. Um, you know, all these people who photographs uh, for so many years, they they never thought that they would become artists, you know, people who could make their living by making photographs. They either taught or they worked for the magazines. I mean, we know this, you know, historically this is true. But now, you know, since critics and collectors and people started going to the, you know, studios at Yale in Columbia or wherever they were, Mm -hmm. you know, then it became a career, you know, and it's... um, and it's kind of dismaying in a certain way. I mean, I think artists should make money. Why shouldn't they? But, you know, that's not, I don't believe that one can be a great, you have to want to be an artist. And those are very complicated, mysterious reasons, motivations, ambitions. Um, And I just feel often that people think it'll be cool, you know, or that it'll be fun or it'll be something. And, you know, that it, they don't understand the depths that you have to go in order to make that happen, to actually be an artist and at the same time i mean i reach there's certain moments when i don't understand what the function of art is at this point in our culture you know it just seems to be another collectible and 
But at the same time, how can I say that when I can go to the Met mm. and I, whether, you know, whatever it is, you know, it's, I, that's my favorite museum at the moment, <laughs> you know, you know, it's, it transports you and that's at least one of its functions is it takes you away from where you are and makes you think about something else or appreciate something or, you know, it's, well, we know what it is. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's completely gone away. I do not. Although, you know, one can be cynical. You go to MoMA and you watch people and they are not looking at the art. They're photographing it with their iPhones. Yeah. I, I don't know what this says about us. But maybe it, was, maybe it was always that way. I mean, we're talking about statistics. How many people really looked at the works of art as opposed to the people who, you know, just walked by or went because their parents told them they had to or something. Right, going back to your childhood, coming to New York exactly. and going to things. Look, and, look. Uh, <laughs> you know, maybe you couldn't take a selfie at the... At Right. at the show but when right. you got back to New Jersey you would tell right. people you guys went and saw yeah. this that and the other thing no, right that's true that's true but um this the whole we were just hinting a little bit at the marketplace and how photography during just during the period when really when you were actively involved at at MoMA that's mm -hmm. when this whole thing kind of well started you, to blow up right yeah. and, and I mean when that must have we would buy everything. photographs I've never told John and don't tell Peter, but, <laughs> um, you know, we would, we would often buy work when people brought work for us to view because there wasn't a whole giant gallery system. Right. So we had direct access to photographers before they got to the galleries, which was a wonderful thing. Yeah. I mean, it's like Larry Fink. I don't think maybe he'd had a show at light. I'm, I don't think so though. Maybe. But I had I I had seen his work with my sister back in the late 60s at Time Life. I think it was the late 60s. And then I saw that he was speaking at the Y on 14th Street, which had a great photo program hmm. uh, run by a guy, I think, named Larry Siegel. And then Michael Spano took that program over. Oh. And he had a guest speakers, and Larry was there. And I hmm. went to him, and he showed his work, and being Larry... I went up to him afterwards and I said, you know, you really should bring your work to the museum because John Tchaikovsky should see it. And Larry said, I want a show at the museum. <laughs> I said, well, before you can have a show at the museum, someone has to see it. Well, he calls me the next day. How can I do this? And so he brought his work. We looked at the work. He came to pick it up. John called him into his office and said, I want to have a show. I'd like to have a show of this work. Would it be okay if Susan did the show? And that was the first show that I did. Oh, okay. Um, I forget what All because of the why. All because of the why. It's true. I don't know what my point was. The notion of career. Yeah. You know, yeah this I, well, this idea that you yeah. were able to have more direct access to the artist yeah. or that you could, you know, for $50, $100, yeah. or whatever. Oh, that's what I started saying. Yeah, yeah. buy prints. Yeah, we and, used to buy pictures where I'd say, well, how much are your photographs? And they'd say... Um, $25. And I say, why don't you make it 50 Because that's a little... But that's how much pictures cost. Right, yeah. It's just, that's all there was to it. Yeah, but... Um, and also thinking more from the curatorial side and from the function of a place like MoMA, there were... No, there was nobody that was uh, on those acquisition committees who also had a whole collection of that work that they wanted you well, to buy were, to promote. But there were people who were extremely knowledgeable about photography. Um, I'm trying to remember his name. He was uh, Monroe Wheeler, um, who had been involved with publishing and was on the committee. I mean, he knew Men Ray, you know, and was collecting Men Ray back in the day. You know, so they may not have had collections. I'm trying to think of when I first got on the committee, um, who was there and what giant collections there might be. I don't think there were people who had enormous collections of photographs, um, but they were very knowledgeable about photography. Mm. And and then it's it's it it starts happening in the '70s that photography becomes the medium of interest. Mm. And, I mean, there are theories about why that's true, and I, I agree with John Tchaikovsky in a book called Mirrors and Windows, an exhibition catalog. He outlines this history, and it's something that I teach because I, I do believe it. Basically, what happened is that artists, traditional artists, stopped being traditional artists and making easel paintings in the 60s and started doing things like land art mm -hmm. and performance art and installation, and you couldn't collect it. Right. So if you're you're you, if you make the spiral jetty, right. 
you can't buy it. Right. Um, and it was meant to be ephemeral. It was meant to exactly, be temporary exactly. and disappear. In fact, there's a recent documentary done by the fellow who did the book about Sam, or the film about Sam Wagstaff and Robert Maplethorpe, James Crump, has done a film called The, oh no, it's one word, it's like The Revolutionaries, but that's not it. Mm-hmm. And it's about those land artists um, from that time. And I saw the film and it was like so inspiring because... There was a woman who owned a gallery whose I'm sorry, I won't remember her name, who funded a lot of these projects. Mm. But they weren't going to, she gave them money so they could live and do the project, not, you know, put money in the bank. Right. It was just so inspiring to see the film because you were seeing artists, because the footage is of them making these pieces, oh, yeah. um, to see artists. And it wasn't about a career, it wasn't about. It was about being against the establishment. Going back to John's point, artists start making art that you can't collect. So the art market, we're talking early 70s, middle 70s, has to turn to collectibles. And they turn not only to photography, but they turn to prints. Mm-hmm. And they're in multiples. So you can yeah. sell them. They're not so expensive. And da, 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 da. And that's why the art world. And then, of course... Photography starts being represented in those international art fairs like Documenta. I think Diane Arbus was the first photographer to be in a Venice Biennale. Mm. Um, You know, so that starts happening. It starts having a presence in those venues, which brings attention to the medium. And also you have John Scherkowski, if I may say so, writing about photography. And you have Susan Sontag's On Photography, which were first published as essays in the New York Review of Books. And I think it's in 77 that they're gathered as a book. So, you know, you have this confluence of circumstance that brings photography to the foreground. You know, and then postmodernism begins, and then it's about a deconstruction of the history of the medium, which I think is in many ways justified. I mean, I can think of some really great work that's come out of that, like Carrie Mae Weems' piece from Here I Saw What Happened and I Cried, mm-hmm. which wherein she re-photographs photographs of black people throughout photographic history, whether it's daguerreotypes or Gary Winogrand's photograph of the white woman and the black man carrying the chimpanzees. Um, I re-photographed them and has written texts to go with the pieces. And it's, it's, she's very bitter and she's very angry about the way black people have been portrayed. No, it's like you said earlier, postmodernism gives a, starts to give a voice to people yeah. who didn't have a voice before, exactly. minorities and women. And, 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 right, and yeah. gets people to think about what they're looking at mm-hmm. in a way they probably haven't, except in these assumed, you know, what knee-jerk kind of ways. I mean, I think Gary's, the photograph that I brought up, is the most provocative photograph, one of the most provocative photographs of all time. And you could have that discussion without Carrie Mae Weems' postmodern act with it. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's good. Yeah, I I, I think it's important in any case. Uh, So I wanted to switch a little bit over to talk. I I mentioned scholarship at the beginning. And when when did you start actually writing about photography more? Oh, gosh. I know Uh, that's a big component. I'm sorry, but it's... um, I I started when I started working at the museum. And I find writing to be extremely difficult. uh, I'm writing... I'm actually writing an essay now. The one thing I learned is start early. Do not procrastinate. (laughs) Um... You know, and the, the problem is I was surrounded, I, I was working with someone like John Tchaikovsky who would, I believe he was someone who walked around thinking all the time, uh, sentences. That were, that were yeah. Sentences. And sentences. so when he came, <laughs> when it came time to write that wall text, was all he would there. go in an office, he'd pick up a legal pad and a pen tell, and he would write the wall text, two paragraphs, three paragraphs, whatever it was. And then he would come to me and say, take a look at this. And he might have crossed out two words. He might have moved one word, but that was it. Mm. And it'd be fabulous. Now, I happen to think there are very few people who can write that way. My friend Michael, who I mentioned earlier, is another one. They just, they're great writers. That's just all there is to it. Mm. Uh, So I find it very difficult. And, um, you know, so I had to begin by writing wall texts. And then I did a book called American Children, which is an embarrassment. The text (laughs) is not the pictures. I think the selection of pictures is great. But I, it's, it's really... Because now you're doing even more, like, I maybe had to for the wall text, too, but I'm thinking of uh, 
Well, you did the chronology for the Gary Winogrand oh, yeah. book. And well, actually, right. I, you're doing like I, research I, and well, defining things. Well, I have a now my position, and I'm also my friend Philip Gefter is writing a an unauthorized biography of Richard Avedon, mm. and I signed on to do the research. Mm. And yes, you're right. I did the and 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 I'm doing a project with Judith Joy Ross and Dan Lears, who's at the uh, the Carnegie Institute and Josh Schwang, who's recently left the Center for Creative Photography, we want to do a multi-volume book of Judith's work. Mm. And I, we just had a conversation a couple of weeks ago where I said, I just want to be clear, I do not want to write an essay. But, <laughs> but I do want to interview her, and I want to write the chronology, because what I believe uh, is most, it's not always true, but often the most useful thing in any of those books are the chronology mm, mm, <laughs> and interviews. Right. I mean, that Winogrand chronology, I don't think anyone could possibly... I mean, I, and it's not because I was so, what, fabulous. Eileen Winogrand, his third wife, kept a journal from the minute they got married, mm. at least, if not before, mm. articulating every day what Gary was doing. Wow. So the chronology that wow. exists in that book relied on that mm. among other things but i can't believe you find out any other i mean i'm sure there are other trips gary took that i aren't articulated in that chronology but it's totally useful yeah it's totally amazing. useful I, I, it's interesting. I read it yeah yeah and it is interesting like, oh, also <laughs> yeah yeah very interesting so what's my point? But nevertheless, I, I, I shouldn't say this for my friends at the Henri Cartier, but I, I take on assignments to do essays. I mean, I'm doing this essay on Louis Fowler, mm. who I knew slightly because he came to the museum in the late 70s. Uh, there was an intern there named Peter Collins who did an exhibition called New Standpoints, mm. which was an idea about the shift from socially conscious work towards a more individual kind of sensibility, mm. a kind of uh, version of new documents in a mm. way. Um, but it had to do with street work. And, and Louis was one of the photographers, and Louis was alive and well, had returned from Paris to New York. So I got to meet him. In any case, he's an interesting figure. And um, But I'm writing the essay partly because it challenges me, because mm. I find writing to be difficult. And... Uh, and also, I'm very interested, and I liked Louis, and I'm very interested in the work. And, I'm, and, and as I write, I'm beginning, it's, to me, it's, it's like a puzzle. I'm sort of putting together the pieces of the puzzle. And his life was, you know, it was complicated um, because he was, he was always split between doing commercial work. I mean, I think he was one of those people who became a victim of that, hmm. doing commercial work and doing his own work. Yeah. Um, you know, he was best friends with Robert Frank. They shared a dark room. Robert goes on to do the Americans. Why doesn't Louis? You know, mm -hmm. this is the question. Hmm. But the but the work is indelible. I mean, there are so many photographs made mostly on the streets of New York that are just, you know, really good, incredible. So anyway. does he he come over at the same time, at, or is he he lives here? Louis is from Philadelphia, oh, and that's okay. another aspect to their respective histories. Louis comes from basically South Philadelphia, where it's very tough. Um, his father taught music in a school briefly, but supplemented their income mm -hmm. by, um, by working, I think, in a dry cleaner or something like that. His mother ran numbers for a bookie. <laughs> so he came from where Robert comes from a very cultured family right. with a fair amount of money. I mean, all through, he's writing to them. You yeah, know, they their just letters, that. exactly. Yeah, right. Whereas Louis, it's like thrown to the wolves. So it's a very different, I mean, people have written essays about this, actually. Mm. Um, so it's a very different history. So it's, But it's interesting to understand why Louis couldn't forge, in, you know, a name for himself or for the, a place for the work in the same way that other, you know, important photographers have. Mm. But anyway. Yeah, not everyone made that transition over, right? No. Yeah. No. No, there are people I think who suffered quite a bit. I mean, he was married. Well, Robert was married too and had two children. Well, Lou is yeah. married and had a son. Yeah. You know, but but there are, who knows? It's it remains mysterious because we never know. What so when when is that work due it's, to be done? He begins in uh the late 40s oh. and photographs through the 50s mm -hmm. and then he leaves the US and goes to London, and he's gone, I think, for a good 10 years, maybe, and comes back at the end of the 70s, and enters again 
when the international art market we spoke of is in full swing. And he gets picked up on by people like Walter Hopps, who was the great curator who worked with Eggleston and other people. He loved the work. Uh, Louis represented um, by Light Gallery at one point. I think oh. there's a show. Um, and there's a couple of museums that do shows. And, of course, Ann Tucker did the monograph maybe about, mm, I'm not sure when, five, seven years ago at the Museum of Fine Arts in Houston of Louis' work. And there are essay, multiple essays by different people. But when is your um This exhibition be will be right. in the fall oh, of okay. this year. And my text is due May 1st. Oh. <laughs> But I'm, I'm writing, I'm writing. It's good, it's fun. Oh, wait, you didn't lose that, did you? I did, but oh, not, no. but, but no, no, no. But I, I, um, I always do hard copy. Okay, right. And I don't know, actually, we mentioned it. You recently had a hard drive crash. And did we mention yes. that already? No, okay. maybe not. Okay. Not, on, not on the radio. Okay. No. <laughs> not on the podcast. For mysterious reasons. Yes, I, three days ago, I lost yeah. all of my files. Oh, but I see it as, a, as liberating. Mm-hmm. Right. It's kind of funny to hear you talk about the difficulty of writing, which I think all writers say, no matter oh, yeah. what, right? Is, but I know that uh, unless you've changed the lec, when you have your class that you teach at Fordham, mm-hmm. your lectures are all written out, right? They you, are. Yeah, so I you, don't read them. Let me just say that I okay. don't read them. I use them as notes, but and but that's very partly, detailed. It's not like they are very points. detailed, yeah. and that's just about making myself comfortable speaking mm-hmm. in front of a group of people. But they're also filled with a lot of dates yeah. and a lot of information. Right. Um, and I do know the history, but I'm not sure I exactly remember when um, Art Forms in Nature was published by Blasfeld, although I think it's 1928. It could be 29. <laughs> in any case, that's, right. that's, I rarely look at those lectures. And, and, and actually, the truth is, it's, it's a way for me to formulate what I want to say in the lecture. Right. And then I read it, and I read it, and I read it. And then when I get to the class, I have it with me, but I'm not reading it. Right. You know, especially at this point. Because I've taught the class for five years. Yeah. <laughs> so it's pretty much in my head. There's nothing worse than people reading to you as well, you know. You don't want to go and sit oh, well, and see, I grew psych- up with that. Uh, I, mean, John, I mean, I remember John, I, he wouldn't read his lectures, but he always had his text. Yeah. yeah I, so I grew up with that. It doesn't yeah. bother me. I, because I'm listening to the words. It. Right. Well, and, sure. I yeah. mean, somebody could be really boring. Yeah. See, I'm, I'm a bit newer to teaching photo history, so I, I do refer to my notes quite a bit in middle uh-huh. class, but, I'm, I, but what I do is I always sort of make it a segue. Like, let me just, let me just read this yeah. part to you, and then yeah. I come back and I, I talk yeah. to the students, things like that. Yeah. So it is, it's a lot of back and forth. Yeah, yeah my you know, experience, I guess, was more from in graduate school, we'd often have these guests come, and they would give us the text ahead of time, so we would read them, and they're like, okay, this guy's coming. That should be interesting, you know. And then you go, and then you know, they sit there and read it back to oh, you. Oh, and you're like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, that's that's not a good it's way to painful. approach it. Yeah, it's painful. <laughs> well, we've also learned to be less patient with such. Now we expect to be entertained. Yes, yeah, that's true. Sorry, Kai. That's we do. True. No, it's, it's really true. true. It is very no, true. No, because when I was in school, you know, somebody lectured. You were expected to be bored, right? Or yeah, you should. It, well, to it be was bored. it was your job exactly. to figure out how to maintain your attention. Exactly. That's what I want to say to my students now. <laughs> <laughs> what else do you want me to do? You want me to dress up like Anna Atkins? <laughs> you know? A performance dance of Anna Atkins. <laughs> something. Something. Sometimes I feel like that's yeah. what they want. Anyway. Um, now you've worked also in teaching, not just giving these lectures, but when you were like a visiting critic up uh-huh. at uh, Yale or when uh-huh. you've come to Columbia and you've done studio visits. And uh-huh. that's a very different relationship with the photographer where you're going in and seeing work that they're working on it and giving feedback. Uh-huh. So so how, what's that like? I mean, do you... Oh, I really enjoy doing it. Yeah. And I will say that I am always completely honest, mm-hmm. meaning, well, I certainly don't try to hurt people's feelings and I don't try to be rude um, but I will preface <laughs> whatever I'm saying by saying I tend to be completely honest, and maybe there may be people who think I'm too blunt. Hmm. But well, Kai, what kind of feedback and, do you get? <laughs> <laughs> and and usually, and it's the way to talk to anyone about you. You talk about what's positive. You know, you talk about what you're seeing that you think is a positive aspect of the work, whatever it is, whether it's the beautiful print or whether it's the people they've chosen to photograph, even though, it, you know. Right. So you start with the positive and then you begin criticizing it. And, you know, I speak from my heart, you know, 
probably always, but um, even in critiques. Um, and I'll say, if I don't understand what the hell somebody's doing, I say, I don't understand it. I, I mean, I think that you're X, Y, and Z, and they'll sit there and be nodding their head and saying, yeah, yeah. And I'll go, yeah, but so what? I mean, you know. Right. So <clears throat> at, at that point, when you say, I don't understand it, do you fully expect them to give you a reasonable, convincing explanation? Or do you pretty no. much know they're not going to be? Oh, no. It, I, I think it's completely on a case by case oh, okay. basis. Right. I think there's someone who will sit there and, I mean, I think there's, it's entirely possible to say, you know, I'm not sure I know mm. what it's about yet, but I know I was interested in, and hence I went to this place and photograph, you know, whatever. And I said, well, if it's about the play, you know, and then you can continue the conversation. But then there are people who say, well, I think the work is, and mm -hmm. I, you know, and then if I don't agree, if I'm not seeing it, you know, you say, well, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm just not seeing it. If it's about this rough and tumble club where X, Y, and Z happens, you're photographing the walls where there's, you know, marks and detritus or whatever, but that's not really giving me a sense of the rough and tumble, you know, whatever, right. you know, you can go on and on. Right, right. But I find it to be an interesting dialogue. I, I do get aggravated with people when they won't listen. I'm not saying they have to agree with me. They have to be it's, somewhat open. Well, they're right? students usually. Yeah. And I mean, I've been with students where it's reached a point where I say, I'm sorry, you're a student. I have looked at <laughs> tens of thousands of photographs. I believe I know something. Just listen to me. You can dismiss what I'm saying, but for the moment, don't argue with me. I mean, we can talk about it after I finish saying what I'm saying, but I don't want you to protest because it's not... It's not helpful, mm -hmm. I don't think. Just try to absorb what I'm saying and think about it overnight. And you think, she's crazy. That's not true. I don't right. believe, I don't agree with her. You know, it's whatever. So, but I do find it interesting uh, to do that because, I, I mean, I'm sorry to be so corny, but, uh, you know, whenever I go to someone's studio or I look at a box of photographs, you never know what you're going to see. You know, it's like Christmas. It's like, you know, <laughs> whoa. You know, it would be that way in portfolio review. I mean, we'd go for weeks and there'd be like so tedious, you know, bound women or something, you know, <laughs> not my favorite. Um, <laughs> you know, but then you'd find something that was terrific and that was like just made up for all of it. And it's the same thing with going to someone's studio mm -hmm. or to have them, you know, to say something that has meaning to them. They go, yeah, no, I, you know, I, you're right. I think I should be five feet closer or whatever, you know. Mm -hmm. It's it's productive and it's you know for both both parties for me and them I think. Uh, so I have unless Michael has something else I have maybe the the last question. Oh, I do have something. Else. Okay, go go you <laughs> okay. go first. Go first. So uh, just just going sort of way back for a moment. But don't did, steal my question. I hope it's. Oh, nice. I hope. Let's. See. <laughs> so did your parents get to see you and your sister in in, in these? You know, being successful, getting these jobs. Yes, but what did they think of all this? Not too much. Um, they were not acculturated people. So that I was, as I said, was working at Time Life, and that was like 19, like 72 to 76, maybe a little later. Maybe not, I wasn't, maybe it wasn't there for five years. Maybe I was there for three uh, years. But anyway, I that somewhere that it's okay. Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, I was making, and it was a lot of money at the time, $25,000 a year. And when I went to MoMA, my salary was cut to $10,000 a year. Oh, wow. That's a huge cut. <laughs> I didn't care. Right. I, because, one, I didn't care about money, stupidly. Um, <laughs> but I, I was going to work at the Museum of Modern Art in this incredible collection. Right. Um, but when my father found out, and it wasn't, as, it wasn't that my sister and I were raised to get married and have kids. We really were raised to be self-sufficient. But self-sufficiency meant money. So my sister, my sister was the first person on both sides of our family to go to college. And she kind of had to beg my father. She'd saved money, being the ambitious person she was. She saved money to pay for From part the of her school. collection box. Exactly. <laughs> it, was, it was spent on the New Yorker and the candy bars. Um, but she needed more money from my dad, and he agreed but very reluctantly. And there was also the difference in 
I, you know, there was a certain amount of resentment because his life was very difficult. I mean, he only gotten to go to sixth grade and here we were sitting in classrooms, you know, reading books. I used to drive him crazy because all I did was read and he'd want me to, you know, go be a waitress someplace to make money, 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 money. Was they, they live, they were desperately poor and they lived through the depression, both of them. So they were not acculturated people. There were no books in their house. Um, you know, we had a TV, there were no magazines. So it was mysterious to them. And in fact, I have a story I tell a friend from MoMA once my, my dad had died, I guess. And my mom was still living in Florida. And this was about when? Oh gosh, in the eighties. Oh, okay. And so this friend and I went, flew down there to what for, you know, a long weekend or something to go to Disney world and goof off or whatever. And when we're on the plane, I said to my friend, um, you know, my mom's going to ask me yet again what I do for a living. And don't be surprised. So indeed, there we are in the screened-in back porch. And my mom says, what do you do again? <laughs> and my friend said, Susan has a very important job, <laughs> Alice. She's a cure, you know. So that's what my parents thought of it. I mean... You know, and, and the truth is, we did end up being self-sufficient. And that was kind of, that satisfied my father. That part they could get. Yeah, they could that they could relate to that. Right. We both lived in decent apartments, mm -hmm. you know, nice apartments. In the big city. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Although, when we moved into this Manhattan, my sister was in Manhattan, my father kept saying, you know, you really should live in Jersey City. You really, it's cheaper. <laughs> I don't know why you have to live in Manhattan. You know, it was always about practicality. Mm-hmm. All right. So uh, my question, which I believe will be our last one, is uh, you're our first guest on the photo show who's not a photographer. Oh. And therefore, but I know you have somewhat of an amusing story I hope to get out of you about. <laughs> another, about, about another urban legend. <laughs> yes, no, no, that I've heard from you about uh, did you ever photograph? And yes. I, I know you did. So, <laughs> do you want to talk about that? Well, experience I don't know which amusing. Well, I mean, you, you. Why, why did you give it up? Why, why not? Why? Oh, because it's, <laughs> it's too hard. <laughs> no, I. Let's see. I think when I was still at Time Life, the the photographer who was the consultant on the photography series that Time Life published, for which my sister was the picture editor, mm -hmm. was Arthur Freed. Arthur Freed was the head of the photo department at Pratt right. for many, many, many years. And he also ran private workshops where oh. he taught photography in his loft right over here on West 3rd Street, I think, above the Blue Onion, mm -hmm. which was a club. Anyway, so I took a workshop with Arthur. Somehow I managed to buy, well, I was working at Time Life. I had money. I was rich. I had $25,000 a year. Mm -hmm. I bought a Leica M2R, R oh. for Rapid Rewind. Yes. And I started photographing. And it was, I just, they were terrible. <laughs> they were just awful. I was completely mesmerized by Lee Friedlander's pictures because, especially back in those days, mm -hmm. the work from the early 70s and stuff, to me, they were like pictures of nothing. Mm -hmm. You know, it wasn't. Ansel Adams, it yeah. wasn't Cartier-Bresson with the people choreographed. It was, yeah. You know, it was just like, I don't know, the <laughs> sidewalk with a stop sign or something, you know. And I thought that was incredibly existentially important <laughs> mm -hmm. to make pictures of such. So I kind of made pictures in that vein. And they were terrible, terrible. And I had a dark room. Oh. And uh, then I sold the Leica. <laughs> <laughs> And um, dismantled the dark room. And where are those pictures? <laughs> oh, you know, I may still have them in a box oh. in the attic in Pennsylvania. Yeah. No, I just, I just, um, I, ju I really think it's very difficult. And and I I think what I enjoyed obviously was not the making of pictures, but looking at them and then trying to understand them and have ideas about them, responses. I wonder if you maybe had the disadvantage of having seen too many good photographs before you attempted it yourself. It's possible. I mean, you can think of people like Lartigue, you know, who starts photographing when he's 10 or whatever. Mm, and six, those pictures right? are, yeah, those pictures are amazing. Mm. Um, maybe. I mean, I have to say, it's like my daughter, who's now 23, and she'll still do it. There, and I, I kind of believe this. Like when, when people are not sophisticated about taking pictures, they tend to take fabulous pictures. Mm -hmm. 
It's it's like it's like Kodak brownie snapshots at the right. turn of the century. Yeah. You know, and it's not the nostalgia for the clothes and the this or the that. It it's it's there's a certain authenticity and the actuality of the experience of standing in that space is as good as a Stephen Shore eight by ten at the street corner in Butte wherever he is. Right. You know, where you look at the picture and you think gosh, that's what it feels like to stand on that street corner when the sun is yeah. right there at that time of day, whatever, whatever, and that car is passing by. So there's something about the, um, I don't know, authenticity again. Yeah, I think there's a, that instinctual mm-hmm. drive where you point it towards something meaningful to you. Well, it's, I, I also, I think of people like Timothy, all those people who did vernacular work, people like Timothy O'Sullivan, which, who is the most amazing of all time, I mean, not of all time photographers, but let's say landscape photography. And I, and I say this to the students. It's like, okay, he has this commission to make these pictures so that the U.S. government can understand where railroads should be built, where there's water, where this, where that, what Indian tribe, whatever. So how do you make a picture that describes what the place is. And so there's something about, but of course it's being informed by who O'Sullivan is, who's clearly very smart. He's, you know, he has some pictorialist sense, obviously. But just the fact that there's the, there's the great picture of like, I think it's his wagon in like, it looks right. like a desert, right. you know, and, 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 and it's sort of off to the right of the picture. It looks like he's this... using it for scale. Is it that one? Yeah. Well, yeah, that, yeah well, yeah, probably. Yeah. And yeah. that's part of the point. Right. But there's going back to your point about this sort of natural, there's something about trying to get the facts that has that, that it in so doing transports what was before the camera into some, into a picture that's just it's not the same thing. It's a picture, and it's just incredible, you know? Well, Susan, thank you so very much for this having welcome. us over. This fun. has been fantastic. And I yeah. think you guys yeah. should sell this to NPR. Yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> you hear and that, you WNYC? Actually, Come Malcolm, Malcolm Daniel, the curator. And then you'll get the cut, of course. Yeah. <laughs> of course. Uh, did yeah. I ask you if you agreed not to be compensated? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Malcolm, Malcolm Daniel, this is my daughter. Let me, excuse sure. me. Sure, yeah. go ahead. I'll call you right back. <laughs> Hi. Um, Malcolm Daniel, who was the curator at the Met, and he's now at Houston at the Museum of Fine Arts. He once had dinner, uh, sat next to him at one of those dinners, and um, he said he thought there should be a car talk show for computers, mm-hmm. for people calling. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and they went, you've got to be kidding. Oh, I said, no, no, think about it. Absolutely. <laughs> That's great. Seems oh. like you have a photo thing going on. It- it's going very well, and it's just Good. and it's just a great way to talk to very smart, well, sure. interesting people. Oh. Well, thanks again. <laughs> <laughs>